wonderful uh, privilege to come together with all of you and worship and sing gospel songs that uh, point us to our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, this is the greatest subject you could ever consider. I would rather preach about Christ, talk about Christ, read about Christ than anything or everything else. This is the, the highest and the noblest and the very best. And of course, even our Lord Jesus Christ Himself said that Scripture was about Him. Uh, the Old Testament was all about the anticipation of His arrival. The Gospels about the incarnation when He came. The book of Acts about the proclamation of Christ. The epistles about the exclamation of Christ. The book of Revelation about the glorification of Christ. We meet Him first in Genesis, um, where He is the one who will be born of a woman who will crush the serpent's head. And we see Him bring that to absolute fruition as we come to the end of Scripture in the book of Revelation. He is the great theme. That's why on the road to Emmaus, He took the Old Testament with those two disciples who were walking along with Him and beginning at Moses and going through the prophets and the holy writings throughout the Old Testament, He spoke to them of the things concerning Himself. He is the great theme. One chapter stands out above all other Old Testament chapters in pointing to Christ, and it's Isaiah 53. You might want to turn to Isaiah 53 in your Bible. And uh, I'm going to do this every day uh, this week, including on Friday. We're going to read the 53rd chapter again. I want you to follow very carefully. I'd like you to sort of begin the, the prospect of committing it to memory. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him." He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied." By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many 
as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I told you on Monday that's the first gospel. That's the first gospel. Matthew is the second gospel. I also told you that this is the most complete explanation of the death of Christ anywhere in the Bible, Old or New Testament. But I want to add something to the introductory thoughts this morning. This is a sad song. While we look at the cross with great joy, this, in my judgment, is the saddest song ever written. It is a song that is full of deep, profound remorse, regret. In fact, it is ultimately sad because there is no remedy. There is no remedy everlastingly for the people of Israel who rejected Jesus Christ because it's appointed unto man once to die after this, the judgment. I told you last time, this is the great confession that the Jews will make in the future when they look on the one they pierced and mourn for him as an only son. That's why the verbs are in the past tense. This isn't back to the future. This is forward to the past. This is a prophecy of the salvation of Israel when they look back at the cross. That's why the verbs are in the past tense. And they say, He was, He was, He was. It's collective. The pronouns are plural. We, our, us. One can hardly even grasp what it will be like in the future when Israel prays this prayer in the full realization that thousands of years have gone by and millions of their nation have perished with no remedy. That's why I say, while from our perspective we sing songs about the work of Christ on the cross, and we even look hopefully toward the time of Israel's salvation, I can't imagine a sadder moment for the saved remnant of Israel than looking back and realizing the horror of all those centuries of rejection. And salvation was first to who? The Jews. He came to his own. His own received him not. This is a sad song. This is a dirge. The day will come when the nation of Israel will recognize the Messiah, the slave of Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
And they will recognize that uh, He bore their sin, He bore their guilt, He took their judgment, their wrath. He was in the place of His people to provide forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. So this looks forward to the time when they look back at the cross. Sadly, to justify their rejection of Jesus Christ, the Jews have had to do something with Isaiah 53. And since any honest look at Isaiah 53 takes you directly to the Lord Jesus Christ, they have to ignore the obvious. And so the Jews throughout history have changed the interpretation of this chapter, and they see themselves as the servant in this chapter. And the wiser and more adept of their Hebrew exegetes and rabbis through the years realize that earlier in the book of Isaiah, Israel is identified as the servant of the Lord, the servant people. But oh, by the way, the servant people who were sinful from head to foot, as we read in chapter 1, the servant people who had to be set aside and for their sin and the sins of the world, an obedient and perfect servant had to come. The Jews have interpreted this to refer to them as if they have been the righteous sufferers who will be rewarded in the future. The, the rabbis are saying by that that all the Jews who died under all of the onslaught of suffering that's been brought to bear upon them did not suffer in vain. They will be exalted. The truth is just the opposite. This is not a revelation that honors Israel for vicarious substitutionary suffering that leads to everlasting blessing. It is rather a lament. It is rather a song of sorrow, a broken-hearted confession by a generation of Jews who mourn the national and personal rejection of Jesus through all their history and finally return and repent. Now, the prophets made much of this, and I, I think it's helpful to understand that. Just a few passages you might want to consider. Look at Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 Verse 31, here is the first promise, really, among the prophets of the new covenant blessing that's going to come on Israel, meaning salvation. Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, we know about the new covenant, don't we? The new covenant is in the blood of Christ. That's what Jesus said. This is the blood of the new covenant. The Lord is going to make that new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, meaning the Mosaic covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the difference. 
I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities and their sin I will remember no more. That new covenant promise given through the prophet to Israel was ratified through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who declared that His death was to seal the benefits of the promises of the new covenant. Look for a moment at Ezekiel chapter 36 because Ezekiel reiterates this. You can pick it up in verse 23. I will vindicate, vindicate the holiness of my great name, says the Lord, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, another indictment of Israel. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord when I prove myself holy among you in their sight looking again forward to the salvation of the nation Israel. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, bring you into your own land. And here comes salvation. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's regeneration on the inside. That's the promise of the new covenant. Then I want you to look at Zechariah. Prophet Zechariah, chapter 12, just for a few minutes here. You come to the second last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah, and you come to chapter 12, and chapters 12, and chapter 13, and chapter 14 addresses Israel's final salvation. Israel's final salvation. If you start in chapter 12, and we'll just kind of bounce through this a little bit rapidly, this is the burden of the Word of the Lord concerning Israel. This is the future of Israel. And what starts is a, is a war. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him, the Lord who is creator. That's simply identifying him as the creator. I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the nations around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. This is the promise that in the future, the nations of the world are going to gather against Jerusalem and against the land of Israel. They'll all be collectively there. It's going to cause the nations to reel. What, what is that? Uh, Jerusalem is pictured like a large basin, and the nations come and they drink as it were, and become intoxicated, and they're reeling, and they can't even maintain their balance, and so they are very vulnerable. And verse 3 indicates there will be easy prey. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the nations. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. This is the battle of Armageddon. All the nations come to Israel. They're sort of drunk uh, with the intoxication of the assault, the final, last assault on Israel, which is constantly being threatened even now in our lifetime today. 
In that day, the Lord says in verse 4, I will strike every horse with bewilderment. You can't say tanks because they didn't exist. Means of battle, horses with bewilderment, and the rider with madness. I'll watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. This is a divine slaughter of the nations collected against Jerusalem and Judea. Verse 5, then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. Whoa. All of a sudden, the people in Jerusalem turn to the Lord, their God, and they begin to trust Him. Yes. And in that day, verse 6, I'll make a clan, the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood. In other words, they'll ignite a conflagration like a flaming torch among sheaves. You put that in dry wheat and you have an immediate fire. They will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. God gathers, as it were, the nations of the world into Judea at Armageddon in the north all the way down to Jerusalem. And then God uses the people of Israel as, along with His own divine power to bring the destruction of the nations. Verse 7, the Lord will save the tents of Judah first. That's the outlying people in the countryside. So that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. He saves all the people around Jerusalem and the city itself. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, the greatest warrior. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. That's an indication of the presence of Messiah. In verse 9, in that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's a disastrous promise for the future of the world. But I want you to look at verse 10. Here's the key verse. At that same event in the end, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Here's that new covenant promise again that we read in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me. This is God speaking. They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. Notice that? They will look on me and mourn for him. As one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They will look on me, God says, and mourn for him. Him, the Lord Jesus Christ. They will look on me whom they pierced. God's saying they pierced me. This is, this is a powerful expression of the deity of Christ. He is God. They will look on me, God says, whom they pierced and mourn for him. Trinitarian use of pronouns. In that day... Verse 11, there'll be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadra Drimon in the plain of Megiddo, the battle of Megiddo, which Armageddon precedes this. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, the wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, their wives by themselves. 
every family, all the wives. What is this weeping? This is the weeping of repentance. You're looking at the scene of the conversion of Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 13 says, In that day, in the middle of that battle, when God spares Israel, they will repent, and there will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem a fountain for sin and for impurity. Salvation. And he goes on to say he will eliminate the idolatry. Down in verse 8, verse 8 of chapter 13, two-thirds will be cut off. Two-thirds of the Jewish unbelievers will uh, be cut off. Death to the rebels. One-third will be left. That's the Jewish remnant that will be saved. Paul says in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved. It's the all Israel left after the rebels are cut out. And they will be brought through the fire, verse 9, and refined like silver, tested like gold. They'll call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they're my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Finally? Finally? How wonderful. And when that happens, the battle waged by God is at its most fierce. Chapter 14, verse 3, God goes forth, fights the nations in a day of battle, and then Jesus returns, verse 4, puts His feet on the Mount of Olives, establishes His kingdom. The mountain is split into a large valley. Earthquakes. Even the stars will dwindle. A unique day, verse 7, known only to the Lord, neither day or night. It will come about that at evening time there will be light. Living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. All of those kingdom features, the millennial kingdom. There it is, all of it laid out, the salvation of Israel. That's why the Apostle Paul says, all Israel will be saved. And when that day comes that they look back on the one they pierced and they mourn for him as an only son, they're going to recite the testimony of Isaiah 53. That's what they're going to do. They're going to say, we didn't believe him. We didn't believe the message given to us. We didn't accept when the arm of the Lord was revealed. We thought saw him as nothing more than a sucker branch to be whacked off, a dead root sticking up out of parched ground that could make somebody trip. His origins were insignificant. His life was insignificant. His appearance was unattractive. He was despised and forsaken of all the nobles and all the leaders, and his whole life was sorrowful and grief-stricken. He's the kind of person you just hide your face from because of his ugliness. We didn't think anything of him. And then the light dawns, doesn't it, in verse 4. Then the light dawns. It was our griefs he was carrying. That's why he was 
a man of grief. It was our sorrows he carried. That's why he was a man of sorrow. The word many is used here five times. And it always refers to the beneficiaries of the servant of Jehovah's astonishing, atoning work. The many are guilty. Only one is righteous. What you have here is a marvelous picture of repentance. Repentance takes full responsibility. The problem is us. It, it has been us. We, our, us. It's us. Paul talks about that in Romans 10. How often God says, I reached out my hands to a very rebellious people. Here, they don't blame God. They don't blame the Holy Spirit. True repentance takes full responsibility. In their confession, there is no blame on anyone but themselves. And with that, we come to the middle stanza in the middle chapter of the middle section of the last half of Isaiah. Now, in chapter 52, 13 to 15, we saw the startling servant. And then in 53, 1 to 3, we saw the scorned servant. And now let's look at the substituted servant. This is an exclamation. Surely is how it starts. Surely. We did not consider him anybody. Then all of a sudden, truly, verily, surely, absolutely, this is sudden recognition of something utterly unexpected. A dramatic change from previous perception. A complete reversal. He took our place. He died in our stead. He gave His life for us. Vicarious, penal, substitutionary atonement. They understand finally as a nation what every individual Jew or Gentile who's come to Christ has also understood. And they know salvation is by faith preceded by repentance. These three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6, are so connected. They're like concentric circles. Each mentions the wrongs and then the provision of the servant of Jehovah to, to atone for those wrongs. It's expansive language. Really incredible language. Verse 4, they're acknowledging what we read in verse 1. We didn't believe the message of Christ. There were only a few. There were 120 in Judea and maybe 500 in Galilee. Out of the whole nation. By the time of Pentecost, more after. In fact, they came by the thousands after that. We didn't believe the revelation of the arm of the Lord, the very power of the eternal God manifest in the incarnate Son. We didn't believe it. Now we know. Here's the objective perspective. Our griefs He Himself 
bore. Our griefs he himself bore. Same thing is said by God down in verse 12. He himself bore the sin of many. That's in the past tense because that's God also looking back at the sacrifice of Christ. Our griefs, what do we mean by griefs? Well, the word really has the idea of infirmities, calamities, diseases, sicknesses. It could be anything. Sins are seen from that perspective. They are aberrations from God's intent when He created man and saw that He was good. These are all of the, all the features of corruption that dominate our lives. He bore. He lifted them up, picked them up, placed them on Himself. In a parallel phrase, our sorrows He carried. This is the word pains and speaks of the inward effect of these diseases. The griefs are the sicknesses, the diseases, the infirmities, the calamities connected to our sinfulness. Pains are the inward effects of those sins, the emotional agony. He carried them, took them up and hauled them away. Theologians use the word expiation. Propitiation means satisfaction to God. Expiation means He removed them. He removed them. If you go back to the book of Leviticus, the people are warned that if they sin and violate God's law, they will bear their guilt. Ezekiel 4 says that. And they will be punished. But here... The servant of Jehovah takes on the full burden of the sinner's guilt and he bears it away. He carries it away like the scapegoat in Leviticus 16. He is the true scapegoat. The meaning is not merely that the servant of Jehovah participates in our pain or participates in our suffering as if only in a measure of sympathy. It is that He takes our pain and He takes our infirmities and He removes them. It isn't that He identifies with them and sympathizes. He does do that. But this is that He carries them away on His back, never to be returned. Never to be returned. Reading the other day of the musings of a Jewish rabbi, Saying, have you ever wondered why, from an earthly perspective, God says your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west? Ever wonder why it doesn't say the north and the south? Because the north and the south always stay in the same place. And there's a pole at the north and a pole at the south. And if God only removed your sins as far as the north is from the south, you could calculate how far that is. But when He removes it as far as the east is from the west never ends. It's infinite. He carries them away. So far away that he remembers them what? No more. Suffering we should have bore, he bore. The calamities and infirmities, moral disasters, 
that we perpetrate, He picked up, put on His back, bore to the cross, and hauled Him off into oblivion, never to be remembered. He bore in His body, 1 Peter, our sins. So when, when this takes place, Israel is going to be weeping. They're going to be wailing. They're going to have seen the truth about the servant of Jehovah, Yeshua, Jesus. And they're going to be testifying to the massive error of rejecting Him and how wrong they were. And they're going to go back and they're going to say, yes, our griefs He bore, our sorrows He carried. And then remember, we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And they go back to the fact that we didn't get it. Our reckoning of Him, our estimation of Him, was that God was punishing Him as a blasphemer. And all those verbs, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, connect to Elohim. That it was God who struck Him. That it was God who smote Him. That it was God who afflicted Him. We thought He was being punished by God for being a blasphemer. That He was experiencing the wrath of God for Himself and His sins. Stricken, the Hebrew word means to strike violently. It's used in Exodus 11 of the plagues. To smite means to beat someone to death. The word afflicted has to do with degrading someone. That, that he was literally treated with violence, that he was stricken, beaten to death, that he was degraded by God. We thought it was God. Well, it was, but not for his blasphemy, but for ours. The Jewish assessment was that all that was going on in Jesus' death was God punishing Jesus for his sins in the future. They're going to look back and say, now we see. Now we see. It wasn't for his sins. Verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on Him, and by His scourging we are healed. Pierced, crushed, punished, scourged by God. Yes, but not for His blasphemy, for ours. Pierced through. Pierced through Psalm 22:16 says it's going to be pierced through His hands and feet. Also pierced in His side. John 19, 34 and following. Some have suggested that this is the strongest possible Hebrew expression for violent death. That he died this violent death. This death that could be described as pierced, crushed, chastened, scourged. Crushed can refer to anything that is bruised or trampled all the way to being completely destroyed. Lamentations 3, uh, 34 says to literally crush underfoot. Another way to describe the death of the Son of God. 
He was bruised. He was punched. He was hit with sticks. He was beaten in the face. Then it says the chastisement for our well-being or our peace fell on him. That is the only Hebrew word for punishment. That is the only Hebrew word for punishment. Used also in Jeremiah 30, 14. It's speaking about punishment. His death is is a formal punishment as a result of an indictment, a trial, a verdict, and a sentence. He was formally punished. He was scourged, lashed with whips, slashing his body into ribbons of bleeding flesh. Jews know all of that. Every Jew in the world today knows that. They have to know it so that they won't believe it, so that they won't accept it. How many times have I talked with Jewish people and they said, we don't believe in Jesus. It's a collective thing with us. They know that. They know the man Jesus, Yeshua, was pierced. They know he was battered. They know he was punished. They know he was scourged. They know all of it. They know more about that than they do about their Old Testament. They have to know about it because they have to reject it. They know that Christians believe that God was punishing Jesus for the sins of others. They know that. And they resist it. But one day, they're going to understand it. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastened for our peace, scourged for our healing. Those are terms for sin, transgressions. What are they? Violations of God's holy law. Iniquities. Iniquity is an interesting Hebrew word. It means to bend double. That's a twisting, a perversion. The word well-being is shalom, full blessedness, peace with God. The word healing is not so much the physical aspect, but the healing of a sick, sinful, guilty, wretched soul. So someday, the Jews are going to believe that. In the meantime, anybody who comes to true salvation, Jew or Gentile, believes that, right? That He was giving a sacrifice for us. Again, I, I can't comprehend what it's going to be like in that day when they come to this realization and think for the first time as a nation rightly about Christ. They will see what every sinner must see. They will come to understand what every sinner must understand to be saved. And then verse 6, really, really important. In verses 4 and 5, they recognize, they recognize 
follow this, their transgressions, their iniquities, their breaches of relationship with God that have stolen their shalom, and they recognize that they have a deep, profound pattern of sickness that needs spiritual healing. They, they get it. Their behavior has to be judged. But there's something more than this. In verse 6, they're going to recognize that the problem is much deeper than what they do, what they have done. It's embedded in their nature. Let me show you this in verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Now, let me just stop and talk about sheep for a minute. Um, <laughs> I don't know a lot about sheep. When I was in high school, I had a summer job herding pigs. That's a little different. We herded them with a big, long rod full of D batteries, which we had fun ramming into their rear ends to move them around. But I have traveled uh, in Australia and New Zealand, and the last time I was in New Zealand, they told me there were 3,000 people and 70,000 sheep. Um, I've eaten my share of sheep, but that doesn't make me an expert uh, on shepherding in any way. But my experiences uh, about sheep uh, aren't really the key to interpreting this. You, what you need to know about sheep is they're very different than other animals. They wander. It has been demonstrated that they have a very small brain. Um, they're one of the dirtiest animals in the world because their wool is full of lanolin, which is a sticky substance. I've been with shepherds in the little rack in Australia where they bring the sheep through, they pull their back legs apart, and they're completely plugged up because lanolin has literally eliminated their ability to eliminate. <laughs> they die. So there's this big razor. And that little sheep runs off with relief. You can imagine. While the shepherd moves quickly to the side. They are the dirtiest animal because their lanolin collects everything. All the dirt, all the bugs, everything. Um, they, they, they can't find water on their own. Um, they will wander away and die, as our Lord tells us in the 15th chapter of Luke. When a sheep goes astray and you've got 99 left, what do you do? It's not like a dog. It's not going to find its way back. You, you drop everything, go find the sheep. When, when the prophet says, all of us like sheep have gone astray, he is saying this, it's our nature to go astray. This isn't just a behavioral problem. This is our nature. We wander away from God and we become unclean and dirty and we live in danger Danger from predators. 
danger from our own inability to eliminate the foul things that are contained in us. Sheep are stupid, defenseless, helpless wanderers. They aren't even like geese who can always find their way somewhere. They aren't even like salmon who can find their way up a stream from the ocean. They don't stay together like birds. They wander, lose their way, leave the safety of the flock. They are independent, self-centered, following their stupid impulses. And they are a perfect illustration of sinners, helpless through life, ignorant, unprotected, solitary, forsaken, separated from the shepherd, without care, without protection, without direction. Jesus looked in Matthew chapter 9 at Israel and said, you're like sheep without what? A shepherd. This is a true confession. This is a true confession because this is saying I am a sinner and my life is marked by transgression and my life is marked by iniquity and I am alienated from God and I am sick. My behavior manifests that, but it's more than my behavior. It's my nature. It's my nature. Something is wrong deep down inside of me that I can't fix. But verse 6 says, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, the whole thing, both our sinful behavior and our sinful nature to fall on Him. And He became the Lamb, the pure, spotless Lamb who took the place of all the dirty, soiled, wandering, rebellious, stupid sheep. God caused Him to pick up our sins and our sinful nature and take it on His back and haul it away. God literally assaulted the servant of Jehovah for our sinful desires, our sinful deeds, our sinful natures. Astonishing. It wasn't sin that killed Jesus. It was God that killed Him for our sin. Judgment for sinners falls on the sinless one. All that great mass of sin and guilt of all who would ever believe through all of human history, He takes for us. How could Jesus do that in three hours of darkness? How could He bear all the sins of all the people who ever believe in the history of the world? How could He bear that in three hours when people go to hell and can't pay for their sins infinitely forever? How can He absorb it in three hours? Answer, He's an infinite person. So mark it, Jesus did not die as a moral influence showing the power of love. Jesus did not die as an example of sacrifice for a noble cause. Jesus did not die as a Christus victor, a popular liberal view back in, coming back from 1930s long ago, to gain victory, to show He gained the victory over hostile powers. Jesus didn't die to liberate humanity and the cosmos from social injustice. 
He didn't die because somehow we are victims trapped in unjust circumstances and need some kind of rescue. But He did die under the principle of penal substitution for all the sins of all the people who had ever believed throughout all of human history to satisfy the justice of God. And the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ is repeated again and again and again unmistakably in this chapter. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He was made sin for us. Galatians 3 We're cursed, but He became a curse for us. He, says Peter, bore in His body our sins on the cross. So God doesn't deal with us according to our iniquities. But He hasn't overlooked our iniquities either out of love. He has to be just. So He takes them all and He punishes Christ for them. And so, says Paul, grace reigns through righteousness. And what is that righteousness? The righteous judgment for all sins on Christ. Grace can't reign unless there is righteousness. So in that day, Israel will make this confession. I trust you've made that confession. That's what Jew or Gentile, we must do to receive eternal life. Lord, we thank You for Your powerful Word. We thank You for the glory of Christ, the shining, blazing glory of Christ. Your glory manifest in Him. Your glory shining in the face of Christ. Your glory shining through the Gospel. Your glory shining through the Scripture. And then Your glory shining through us. Christ in You, the hope of glory. We thank You for our blessed Savior. Looking at what He has done for us and what He has taken for us all divine wrath against all our sins should fill us with such overwhelming gratitude that we are motivated to godliness and virtue and obedience by love. By love and gratitude. Strengthen us, Lord. May we mature so that we come to the place where we live as You would have us live, not out of fear, um, fear of men or even fear of Your discipline, but so that we live out of love and gratitude for what You in Christ have done for us. Be exalted in our lives through our loving obedience. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.